You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Dan, when you were uh, when you were teaching, like uh, in high school, did you ever just like flip open to a news story in a in a newspaper and just like go off on that? Like, are we talking about like physical? Yeah. Papers we, that I can- oh, I'm talking about physical newspaper, like <laughs> getting like the Times or whatever the Times of your region is. How how old do you think I am? And when do you think <laughs> when do you think I taught? I mean, we we use the internet. I know it was I, a long time ago. It you know I mean it's feeling increasingly like it. I did my student teaching in 2004, and I my last year in the classroom was 2011, which is crazy. That's t- coming oh, yeah. up. Yeah, t- it's about oh, ten year- your ten year anniversary. Yeah, ten year anniversary of leaving the classroom. Although I didn't know till midsummer, and I didn't plan. I planned on coming back for my seventh year of teaching uh, high school. Um, but I mean, I went to websites oftentimes and found stories and brought those into my classroom. If that's relevant yeah yeah so it's just it's interesting i feel like um there's just always stuff happening and uh i i've been toying with the idea of like building a government class it's one of my dreams and like all i want to do for part of it is just to flip open to a newspaper and i know i know it's kind of old school because i think it'd be fun just to pass out the newspapers and that'd be kind of like half the thing although of course there's worry in that because I feel like everything sometimes is so jaded. So maybe you have a couple of different newspapers for students to choose from. Then you got to play around with bias and whatnot. I think right. it's kind of a neat way to, to, to uh, fuel a class. Well, I think kind of what you're drawing on here is actually a whole class that used to exist in the social studies and was kind of envisioned, right? So like historically, there's kind of been two big camps in the social studies. And, and by this is over. I enjoy camping. Yes, yes. I mean, uh, car camping, not like going out <laughs> into the wilderness. And, uh, you know, I like to have access to leave. And th- this is a little bit of an oversimplification. But w- one of the camps was, you know, treated social studies just like, you know, the it's just the disciplines, right? You teach history, you teach geography, you teach political science, right? You just teach those disciplines. Uh, and then the other camp was the so- more social education, social studies camp. They kind of approached this from a citizenship perspective, right? And so one of the classes that came out of that vision was called social problems. And it was taught in schools across the United States. Uh, I think it really started dropping off with the 1980s movements towards standardized testing. But the social problems class really was the idea that you should be able to take important issues, right? So I think this would apply to news stories, right? Which are usually thematic and part of longer histories than just the single event you're reading about. Right. and, and they would, you know, apply those disciplines to understanding those, right? So you would look at like, how can we understand this current event through history, through economics, through geography, you know, through those for citizenship, right? To do things in the world, to, to strengthen democracy, to make more informed choices, all that stuff. So I feel like I, I should be taking notes on this. This is some good stuff. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, so the point the point is, is, you know, people have tried a lot of stuff in social studies, right? Like, there's not a ton of like, brand new ideas. Um, and I guess that's the benefit of knowing history, even of our field. Very good. Very good. So do you do you ask that because you want to continue to think about how you can 
uh, take these issues in the world and, and make a difference, you know, and help students understand and be informed and make a difference in our democracy in the larger world? Absolutely. And just to better understand the world around them. I feel like a lot of times when we're just, I mean, and so this would be a different course, this would be more of a government course. Um, but instead of like, I feel like we're so we're rooted a lot just, I mean, I teach world history too. And so like my focus right now is leading up to World War Two. And so I, I feel like by uh, incorporating more, you know, uh, current news stories that would help us bridge the gap to talking more about today. And Absolutely. sometimes I do do aspects of this. Well, I think the real advantage there would be that the curriculum would be so much more responsive, right? I mean, it, we've, we really struggle to keep up with the events in our world that have changed and, you know, standards are updated. What, like sometimes some, I heard Pennsylvania standards were last updated in 2002. Oh I, I wasn't even a teacher yet. I was in the middle of college. I was totally irresponsible. Unlike I now, was also irresponsible at that point. Although I was right. in the record. I mean, I'm still irresponsible, but I have the facade of an adult. So, uh, so speaking of uh, facade of adults, let's bring adult. in real adults to teach us a few things and maybe add a little bit more wisdom to this conversation. And so speaking of adults, uh, let's bring in some real, credible, authentic adults who can teach us a little bit more about this topic. Uh, we would like to welcome into the podcast, Stephen Camicia and Ryan Knowles. Welcome. Hi. Hi. Thank you. <laughs> And of course, of course, Ryan is a friend of the pod, not his first visit. Um, although during COVID, his facial hair has gotten much, much better. It's it very, very impressive. impressive. Has, yes, this is the, you could have sported this in the 1800s, which was like the apex of facial hair. I only go back about 200 years of my facial hair history. Mm -hmm. I've been letting it grow since the pandemic started. So this is my pandemic stash going. Well, so. And Michael won't see this connection coming, but he should. I actually want to do a lesson on the changing facial hair of Frederick Douglass over the course of his life because he actually had really different haircuts. He went full beard. He had like he went mustache, which was a terrible look for him, just like the mustache uh, alone. So, about, yeah. yeah. So you didn't think I, that was you didn't think that was coming, Michael? No, I, didn't. I think I think that uh, doing a history lesson on the history of facial hair came up in my last podcast as well. So, oh gosh, <laughs> we're, we're predictable. All right. We do want to let our listeners know we're actually just uh, an algorithm that shoots out the same points episode after episode. Uh, you've caught on. It's just a little bit of, of, of machine learning here. Um, so we would love to hear from uh, both of you uh, about your backgrounds in education a little bit before we jump into talking about the, the project that, that you all have been working on. I was an elementary teacher and I started getting interested in looking at class meetings and discussion of topics within my elementary classroom. I taught fourth and sixth grade. And I started reading Walter Parker's work and eventually went to University of Washington to study with him. And then I ended up at Utah State. Very nice. I, I always appreciate Walter Parker because he is the one who taught me how to use the word idiot for people. Uh, in, in like an historically accurate way, right? So idiots are people who like do not, idiocy is right, like not wanting to participate in your, in your local civic government, right? Like that it's, that, that you're not a citizen of your community. You're just interested in your own personal well-being. So next time you call someone an idiot, that's the meaning. Learn that from Walter Parker. Can I jump in? I've, the whole idiocy thing with Walter Parker always bothered me because I feel like some people, I think not participating is, is quite a rational decision. You know, like sometimes it's going to be an act of protest, 
then maybe they're not the the idiots or idiocy. So I always wondered that was kind of that 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 reference always bothered me. Sorry, I know that's not what we're no, talking no, about. No, 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 that's but... that's that's an excellent point. And so now I retract my previous comment about calling <laughs> everyone idiots. <laughs> right. It sounds good. So I'm Ryan Knowles. Um, I'm also a professor at Utah State University, and I am from rural Missouri, and I did my bachelor's degree at the University of Missouri, master's, 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 and PhD, and went and taught abroad in China and Brazil after I graduated, and then moved back to Missouri and taught sixth grade social studies, uh, mostly geography at, in my hometown in northeast Missouri. And before I went back to school and, and got my master's and PhD, and now I'm uh, just recently got promoted to associate professor at Utah State University. Woo-hoo. Woo-hoo. Congratulations. Is it, um, is it true that Missouri loves company? Yeah, that, I think you might have told that joke last time, too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, yeah, Missouri, Missouri does. I'm, but, but I, you know, where I'm from, a lot of people call it Missouri. So I don't know if it if it works the same way. Well, just like Grandpa Simpson, I I'll be dead in the ground before I recognize Missouri. That's right. Did I make yeah. that joke? Did I? Is that I don't think one? so. That's I my only Missouri so. joke. I, I yeah. must have used it. So <laughs> yeah, because um, he had forty nine stars on his flag. Well, <laughs> well, we'll have to celebrate uh, your your tenure. Um, I often in um, Salt Lake City, so which is uh, is that near Logan? It's about an hour and a half. Okay. All right. Well, I don't have a car. So if you want to come to me when I'm there visiting, my twin sister lives in and my mother oh. live in, in Salt Lake City. So, well, the reason we're having you on today is not to uh, uh, book celebration plans, but you all have a book that's out. And so we want to talk a little bit about that book with you. The book is titled Education for Democracy, a Renewed Approach to Civic Inquiries for Social Justice. First, congratulations, a book. Like that is a thing you can hold in your hand and say, I did this while not calling people idiots. You put that on a shelf. That's great. Oh, and can I, um, can I read a blurb if this is okay? We address these challenges. So we're talking about the challenges uh, to democracy, uh, to rethink democratic principles and how these principles might be supported in the classrooms in order to teach social justice. We address these challenges in our new book entitled Education for Democracy, a renewed approach to civic inquiries and social justice. We build a vision of education. That is a copyright infringement. <laughs> for we'll, democracy built we'll around be... promoting equity and social justice. That's the name of our podcast. That I is. do listen to your podcast a lot. So maybe it was in my, in my <laughs> I do too. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. Well, we will be our lawyers. Uh, we'll be sending you all some letters and some paperwork to take care of. So tell us about this book. That's really exciting. I mean, the I really love particularly right education for democracy is of course an idea that's been you know really highly discussed. But I mean, I, I your for your title makes me think of democracy and education off the bat, um, which John Dewey wrote in 1916, if I remember correctly. We had the hundred year anniversary, and people were talking about. But a renewed approach to civic inquiries for social justice. I love that combination of inquiries and social justice. So can you tell us a little bit more about? how this project came to be and and what's in the book? Yeah, I can start off if that's okay with you, Ryan. Ryan and I work in very similar areas with the different research interests. And we thought maybe we could kind of combine the different work we were doing into a, a book project. And a lot of it came from uh, looking at different models of education for democracy and that's sort of the to- topic of one of the chapters is that 
you know, really there's lots of different types of democracy and, and then situating ourselves within more of a critical approach that attends to social justice in ways that maybe some of the traditional models didn't necessarily do. I'm assuming when you're talking about models for democracy, you're not talking about Derek Zoolander's school that he founded as a place where this takes place. But could you tell us a little bit about what those models look like? Sorry, I thought of male models. Well, there's just different approaches to looking at the way power is distributed within communities. And, you know, we start off with looking at some of the more traditional ways of looking at it. So a rural approach, Republican kind of more of a procedural approach and looking at some of the strengths and weaknesses of those. Sometimes students, I think, are left with the impression that it's making these decisions. And if we just kind of go with discussion and then voting, that it can focus a lot on individual preferences, which is more of a market-based approach. And then there's all sorts of different other, all, all sorts of other ways to look at it that can kind of situate the work we're doing as, compa- as compared to some of the work other people have done. That's, it's really important to, to understand what our visions for democracy look like, right? Because I think the word democracy is kind of thrown around. And for some people, democracy is more associated with, you spoke, with voting and laws which can then be used to oppress other groups within society oftentimes. And and a lot of scholars in social studies have written about that, right? About challenging those notions of democracy. My my colleague here at UNT, um, we had her on the podcast in in episode 69. And she talked about, for example, black female teachers, right? And took a black feminist approach and talked about things like free spaces within communities where black people could make democracy after, uh, you know, and kind of not, not, you know, departing from necessarily completely the system, but, but, but figuring out what democracy means in terms that are meaningful to them, right? In a society where there's been continued uh, efforts for oppression and things. So, so I think it, are increasingly we seeing more models that are counting for the way, not just the idea of democracy, the way it's supposed to work, but the way it really does work. Yeah, I, I think that's, you know, a, a great example of kind of a, the overarching, an, an example of overarching point we're making in the book is that democracy isn't, is not neutral. I, I think there's this idea a lot of teachers have in, in my classes, and I, I see that, you know, democracy is us getting together and talking about an issue, and then we all come to some kind of consensus about a common good, and then we sort of vote on it, and the best ideas will prevail, right? The most reasoned, well-argued, rationalized ideas will will sort of win, and we kind of, you know, challenge that idea that a lot of, you know, the ideas that rise to the top are the result of kind of the power that already exists in society, that it's not necessarily the best idea wins, right? It can be who has the most power within that decision-making space. So I think the example of making sure that there's other spaces for discussions to take place, making sure that we're supporting it, being conscious of what ideas we're discussing and letting into the space and we're excluding is is kind of an important step for education for democracy. The the whole concept of having like, you know, a bunch of different people and and the best ideas winning reminds me of the West Wing, which is one of my favorite shows, but it doesn't seem realistic. It seems like that's not what any Washington, I mean, that's, you know, the ideal, uh, but that does not seem very accurate, but it makes for great drama. 
It kind of reminds me too of Lincoln's cabinet, right? Isn't that the legend behind it, right? Lincoln had all these diff- people with different beliefs on his cabinet. And I, I guess you could say Washington's cabinet is idealized in that same way, right? But then you still think about all the views that are missing, right, from those cabinets, right? I'm, I mean, like probably the one of the worst moments of Lincoln, Lincoln's presidency is when he um, actually has a bunch of black uh, religious leaders right into the White House and like lectures them all on freedom and their role and in this kind of really condescending, patriotizing way, even later in his life when he'd, he'd move closer to the Emancipation Proclamation and things. And so the way it actually plays out, right, I think, again, a lot of the ideals of democracy have really been challenged in re- increasingly over probably the last 50 years, um, although some people have been challenging them for far longer than that. Um, so, so yeah, so what is, what does the book consist of? What are the, what are the chapters in the book? How did you organize it? How, how will readers make their way through this and, and figure out what it, what it means for them in their classrooms or in research and other areas? The first chapter is the introduction and basically goes through kind of what we're just talking about. Some of this model of what we, what's commonly referred to as the deliberation model, where we get students discussing controversial issues, salient issues and within society, learning the history and the background, and this idea that through that discussion, some notion of a common good or consensus will kind of emerge. And we challenge that in this book is kind of a, a fundamental basis that a lot of the views and understandings of people aren't that flexible. They're rooted in their own kind of position and ideologies and may not be congruent with democracy or some kind of a notion of a society that increases human expression and empowerment. And just a couple of things that limit democracy or, or the conversations, that deliberative process towards the common good. There's the civic empowerment gap or debt where some people, some communities have been invested in in different ways than others. Schools are not politically neutral spaces. There's a lack of actual political efficacy, individual notions of democracy, a middle-class bias in civic education racial nationalism and uh, assimilationist notions of civic education were just a few things we highlight individually in that first chapter that prevent kind of meaningful deliberations and conversations within schools. And and there's other examples as well. And so that first chapter, we kind of outline some of those basic overviews of limitations of education for democracy within public schools. Yeah, then I would say we move on to what I was um, mentioned before about different conceptions of democracy and what those might look like. And before describing the, well, I can I use the word vision for a democracy that we <laughs> Use it at but, your own peril. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's kind of an assumption, I think a lot of times that everybody knows what democracy is and presenting different notions and ways that people have approached it kind of add clarity to making distinctions, really talking about the, what, what are our goals for the, the type of education for democracy we have in our classroom and knowing different approaches to democracy will help us as educators clarify what those goals and learning objectives would be. And then we move into a model borrowing from Young on increasing inclusion and democracy by focusing on different aspects of communication within public spaces, whether that's a classroom or the public square or whatever, we're looking at that we could use a critical approach to understand how power is structuring conversations. 
And we really kind of focus in the next chapters on how that power operates to exclude or include and providing examples of, of ways that we could approach that. I really appreciate that focus on, on, again, that you all have in this book about really negotiating what we mean by democracy, because I think that is a challenge. As an example, a few years ago, our editor, Zach Seitz, and I, along, along with another colleague, Prentice Chandler. Zach Seitz and I and uh, Prentice Chandler, we wrote an article that was intended to address voter ID issue, right? And so we came up with a compelling question, as you do in social studies. I love writing compelling questions for my lesson. And the question was, are voter ID laws democratic? And we had the whole lesson set up, right? Kind of using deliberative norms and everything. And the reason we wrote the lesson is because we did not think voter ID laws were democratic. And we were really bothered by them that they would be actually reduced democracy. Uh, but I think we had this kind of notion that we had to, you know, have a pro con and leave this space or else it would be biased. Um, and a lot of the lesson hung on notions of democracy. Right. But if someone chose to just define democracy by elected representatives pass laws and that's what democracy means, then these voter ID laws could be considered democratic. Although I just really struggle with that because it seemed their true intention was to reduce the, the number of you know, voters of color and voters who are opponents of Republicans from getting out to the polls, which seems like that should not be a goal in any realistic democracy. And so actually having a strong definition of what it means is helpful. And by the way, I would rewrite that lesson if we were doing it today, um, because it's hard to do a lesson around a disingenuous argument, which is, I think, the case with has been the case with voter ID laws and then the more current iteration of voter suppression laws. So I love that you all are wrestling with that and, and thinking about social justice, which is to ensure everyone's included. Yeah, so how else does the, bu the book unfold and allow people to continue wrestling with these, these challenged notions of democracy? Your example is, your examples give a good jump off to the next chapter and really the next two chapters that talk about challenging some of the ideas of binaries, like for or against, right? Even, even some like really popular binaries like gun, for or against gun control are actually aren't, right? There's a lot of different levels and degrees and, and choices that are made along that span that a lot of times we pretend like they're binaries because we only have two political parties that win elections, right? So we, but most political issues, pretty much every political issue or social issue doesn't exist on this kind of binary uh, structure that we like to talk about it. Another thing we talk about is how we define and use the, the phrase controversial in how we explain certain things. For example, there's the you know, LGBTQ rights isn't controversial to some people. It's just what should happen, right? Um, so, so when we frame things about controversial, how even that label can limit some things from being talked about in some spaces. A lot of the discussion models are based upon sort of a binary, which is very exclusionary of the perspectives, as Ryan just mentioned, that aren't really captured on those extreme ends of the for or against or whatever the situation is. So the, the model that we propose takes some of those traditional models like take a stand or walking deliberation or structured act academic controversy and have it asking students to look at that model and the ways that that model might increase perspectives rather than going in that binary mode that a lot of them are, the format are in. So that when they're looking at those, those, might, those models might be a good place to start, but they're kind of a starting place and not 
not the objectives that we're looking for. There's a, a and Dan, I might've forgotten the website. The, I believe it's I side with where mm-hmm. like you're looking at beliefs of uncontroversial issues. And so initially there's like, you can pick the binary, like I'm for gun control, I'm against gun control, or you can click into it and you actually get a bunch of different perspectives. And I found that by forcing my students to like engage in that has been, has led to a lot richer conversations because it's not just like you said, the binary, and you can totally still do that on the website if I, but you can also engage with it on a much more realistic, like it's much more complex as an issue like gun control or abortion or a variety of other things are. And so I found that um, to be extremely helpful by just clicking into it a bit more. And I was very happy to, to find that they had it. Uh, another issue that that's really changed, I think, our democracy is the rise of social media, right? Any any act, any emerging medium, right? With for whether it's it's you know books, television, radio, now social media that that kind of become very ever present in our lives, oftentimes change our politics and stuff too. How do you all address some of these technological changes? Moving forward, democracy is is largely and increasingly so being enacted within social media. One topic I think that teachers could, should think about is kind of like how we're talking about how classroom spaces can limit and include certain ideas, include and exclude certain ideas and perspectives within that conversational deliberation space. So can social media uh, and it can happen on a mass scale. So the companies can develop algorithms, which we were talking about earlier. Uh, They could develop algorithms to allow certain ideas to show up on your newsfeed and not show up on your newsfeed or on your YouTube link or your TikTok or or all these different sources. So I think a lot of times, and there's some research that we cited in, in the book that people tend to think that Google or these algorithms are more neutral politically and ideologically neutral than they actually are. Teachers making that explicit and clear and providing example for their students is a good is a good path to help them navigate kind of democracy through this social media space that's going to be going to be such a thing going forth in the future and that's kind of our chapter 5 and that book really kind of breaks that down. Absolutely. And if, if people have not, there's so much good work being done in this area from Sophia Noble's Algorithms of Oppression book yeah, oh to, yeah. to the new Coded Bias documentary. If you haven't seen that, on, that's available on Netflix. It's, it's tremendous. I mean, and hey, Mark Zuckerberg fashions himself as the leader of a democracy, right? Like he made up his own, quote unquote, he, I, I am not making this up for people that don't know about it, his own Supreme Court that he chose, he pays about half a million a year to each of them to make decisions uh, when he thinks it's in his best interest for them too, which by the way, don't worry, he doesn't have to follow anyone's decisions because he has over 50% of the shares and he doesn't, he ignores his own rules he makes up all the time. So Mark Zuckerberg is a, did you, did you get a chapter in there about, about how our uh, Mark Zuckerberg can be our leader in understanding um, democracy? I didn't, I didn't get quite that far, but the quote on the chapter, the subquote below the title is Mark Zuckerberg. It says, move fast and break things. Unless you are breaking stuff, you're not moving fast enough. But mm-hmm. I worry that it's democracy that he's, he's breaking, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It, uh, he's, he's making an attempt at it. As Ruha Benjamin says, uh, move slow and protect people is a better uh, response to, to some of this. I just really hope Mark Zuckerberg invites me to like that one of those comedian sessions where you get to burn him because I'll just go I can go like an hour I think so so it's teeing me up I have a I have a lot uh, 
a lot, a lot of material um, that he's given us over the years. So this is a, it's a really exciting project and a really exciting book. So what are, what are your, what's your advice for, for people first? Well, where do they get it? But then also what's your advice for educators, for, for teacher educators, researchers, citizens, parents, community members, social media titans who are picking up this book and, and trying to learn a little bit about democracy and what we can do in a social studies classroom. I think one of the main things that we bring to classrooms and research is looking at this interaction between democracy and inequitable power relations in society that, you know, when we share reasons, those reasons aren't in a decontextualized vacuum. They emerge from somewhere and someone's interests are represented by those reasons and looking for instructional methods to help us understand the context of those reasons. We give a lot of examples in the book of how we can use counter narratives, how we can understand discourse and what's that, what that is doing in conversation. And then also just looking at the, the responsibility that we have towards each other and how kind of those three things fit together, can fit together within the curriculum to increase inclusion and be more critical uh, about the form of democracy that we want in our classrooms. Yeah, and I'll, I'll add kind of like how you all set up at the very beginning that when you look at a lot of mission statements in schools and a lot of mission statements in universities, democracy is in there a lot of times somewhere. But I, I take history classes, I take literacy, I take math, I take all these classes when I'm in school, but I don't take a democracy class. Something I, I think that we should think about a little bit is what vision of a democracy are we putting forward in our schools, in our public education, in our higher education, and becoming more purposeful about how we're representing people, how we're representing ideas, and how we view democracy within our classrooms and our schools is, is an important kind of question that education has to address, you know, moving forward. Thank you so much, Ryan Knowles and Stephen Camisia, for joining us today and talking about your, your new book. Thank you for inviting thank, us. We appreciate thank you. It. So uh, where can our listeners find you, your work, and your book online? You can find the book. I made a website, uh, Stephen and I made a website for called educationfordemocracy.com. So you can just type that in and it has a little blurb and a link to the publisher's website that you can find it there to purchase it. You can also request from your library. Stephen and I at the Utah State University Library, we requested it and we got an ebook. So we can just have our students use the ebook through the, through the library, I think is a, is a great opportunity. For me, I, Google Scholar, Twitter, things like that are, are you can find me. We'll, we'll also get those uh, links on the page. Um, I'm glad you're at educationfordemocracy.com. I can't believe that was available. That's really good. I'm guessing you got that after you tried to get visionsofed.com. But, I did. Visionsofdemocracy.com. Yeah. That was already taken. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much again for joining us today. We certainly hope to continue the discussion online and in other spaces. All right. Thank you all. Thank you very much. Now at the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun and creative in education, or you just want to chat, we hear you and we're there. Tweet us at Visions of Ed on uh, Twitter. We're also sometimes on Facebook and sometimes we'll talk to you there. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Ed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you'd like us to be.
And if you write us a five-star review, that means a lot to us. We will read it on the air and it helps people find this podcast. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Crutch. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.